Imagine for a moment your phone is dead. There's no internet, no emailing, no texting. Communication is completely cut off. You can't connect with anyone, not your spouse, your kids. You can't reach the doctor, the police, the fire company, EMS. No one. Not good, huh? Now imagine you can't even connect with God. There is no prayer. You know, it's been said that too often our greatest privilege becomes our greatest neglect. Hear that again. Too often our greatest privilege becomes our greatest neglect. And that privilege? Prayer. Prayer. Our immediate, anytime, anywhere access right to the heart of God. And I have to confess that too often prayer becomes my greatest neglect too, even though I consider it a great privilege But maybe before we go any further, we need to offer at least one reason why we pray. Prayer acknowledges our dependency on God. Acknowledges our dependency on God. And whether we know it or not, we're always dependent upon God. And know also, prayer is much more than just communicating with God. Prayer is communing with God. And by the way, should you ever be stuck for how to pray or what to pray, Prayers can be found all throughout the Bible. However, there is that one prayer with which we're all familiar, the one we've labeled the Lord's Prayer. And for that prayer, would you please join me this morning in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and it can be found on the front of your, your church bulletin this morning. For literally, the Lord's Prayer becomes the centerpiece to the Sermon on the Mount, the centerpiece. But again, know that it's not the only prayer or the best prayer. Rather, as Jesus introduces God's new humanity through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents this prayer as a model prayer, certainly to be prayed, but also to be an outline, a framework for prayer. Now, to be sure, it is Jesus who surfaces the subject of prayer in Matthew chapter 6. But according to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, it is the disciples who asked Jesus how to pray. Now, I don't know if Jesus had how to pray on his agenda that day, but it was at that point. And the disciples should be commended for their request. Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus, we want to learn from you how to pray. Now, does that mean uh, Jewish people didn't know how to pray? No, no. But most often in the Old Testament, it is only those who held positions of authority whose prayers are recorded, like prophets, priests, and kings. But again, most impressive to me is these disciples are hungry to pray, or at least how to pray more effectively. And that is to be commended. And why? Because again, it's a privilege to have immediate access to the heart of God. So Jesus will take five verses to offer this model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. But first, you may remember from last Sunday, Jesus told us how not to pray. How not to pray. Not with hypocrisy, but with integrity. Not to be seen or heard, but in quiet humility. Not with repetitious babble, but sincerity. Not God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. Amen. The bottom line here is our prayers are actually to be an act of worship in spirit 
and in truth. Meaning with the right heart and with the right content. Well, let's move on now to that right content for prayer, beginning with verse 9 in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, our Father, our Father. Now, this opening line may have caused some of the Jewish disciples to, to flinch a bit. Wait a second, Jesus. We can call God our Father? Call God our Father? See, you'd be hard-pressed to find in the Old Testament, in Abraham, a Moses, a David, calling God Father. Father. Might be considered audacious. For that would make God, that would make them God's offspring. Not just as sheep, not just as servants, not just as friends, but his divine children. So apparently God's new humanity includes a new family, a heavenly family for us. Those who are born again, born from above, born of the Spirit through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John understood this when he writes, to as many as received Christ, to those who believed in his name, to them he gives the right, the privilege, to become the children of God. The Apostle Paul also understood followers of Christ, children of God, could now affectionately refer to God as their dad. Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. That word dad doesn't show in print exactly, but you'll see it. Galatians 4, verse 6. Because you are children, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, translated dad or daddy, Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but now God's child. Now, how's that for an upgrade in status, huh? Dearly beloved children of the heavenly Father. The Apostle John again, Behold what manner of love the heavenly Father has lavished on us that we would be called the children of God. But also, we're, we're not an only child. Did you see that? Did you hear the pronoun Jesus used? Our Father. Collective. Our Father, you who are in Christ by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not alone. We are family. And the good news is, and the good news includes, at least for me, just as Earl Culp will always be my father and Andrew Culp will always be my child, so Neil Culp will always be a child of his heavenly father. Why? Because I've been born again. And there's now nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And by the way, that then makes Jesus Christ my big brother, doesn't it? And you couldn't have a bigger or better brother than Jesus, who is the Son of God. Here Jesus, at his resurrection, verify these new family connections we've been afforded. John chapter 20, it's resurrection morning. And Jesus meets at the empty tomb with Mary Magdalene, and he says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, Mary Magdalene, to my God and your God, Mary Magdalene. Hmm. Our Father, God, who is in heaven. Isn't that what's next? But what a privilege 
our Father, even our divine Dad, for we who are in Christ. And did you hear God's location, location, location in this prayer? Most of us know that in real estate, location is pretty important. Like it or not, where someone's located says something about who they are. And the fact that our Father is located in heaven speaks volumes about who he is. Now consider this for a moment. The father of my granddaughter's best friend is located in Washington, D.C., in the Capitol building as the head of the Department of Energy. Impressive? Well, here's something far more impressive. You've got people sitting around you this morning whose father sits on a throne, reigns over a kingdom, and rules with perfect peace and justice right around you. Now that's impressive. And that's who our prayers reach. Our Father who art in heaven. Well now Jesus will take us through seven prayerful petitions in this prayer. And the first three petitions acknowledge God's glory. While the last four will be for our good. And that first petition for God's glory, you know it. Hallowed be his name. Holy be his name. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God the Father has numerous Hebrews' names. But in the New Testament Greek, God the Father is simply Theos, God, which encompasses all that God the Father represents. And if his name is to be hallowed or holy, it certainly shouldn't be used flippantly or in vain. Isn't that the third commandment? Not to take the Lord's name in vain. Rather, God's name is to be revered and glorified. And so we sing on occasion, glorify his name in all the earth. But why else? Why else should we do this? Well, because in that day, your name represented not just who you were, but also your character, your calling. So when addressing God, we, we should come with reverence. We should come with holiness, certainly not referring to the man upstairs. And that word hallowed or holy just doesn't mean set apart. Better state it means set apart and set above all other names, the name above all names. Even Jesus knew his whole life was set aside to revere and glorify the Father. Right before his crucifixion, what does Jesus pray? Father, for this reason I came. To glorify your name. So if Jesus was expected to hallow, revere God's name, I think we would be on that list also then. Now Jesus' model prayer continues with its second and third petitions that we should hold in highest regard God's agenda, God's reign, God's rule and rules. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done, God, on earth as it is in heaven, verse 10. Now that should stop us in our tracks because Jesus is now teaching that the higher priority in prayer is not my shopping list of requests, but rather God's shalom agenda. Shalom. Now I know the Hebrew word shalom doesn't appear in this prayer, but shalom means what God desires. That God's kingdom should be what God wants it to be. And that's shalom. God's kingdom should be what God wants it to be. You know, as it is in heaven. 
And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind a little more heaven here on earth anyway. <laughs> and that's just what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. For heaven here on earth. So what might that look like? What might that include? Well, how does the Apostle Paul describe God's kingdom, God's goals, God's values? Here the Apostle Paul described them in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not just a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but righteousness, peace, and joy here on earth, that sounds pretty good to me. And we have the privilege of praying to that end right here and now, even to the one who can bring perfect righteousness, perfect peace and joy. So what becomes our role, our responsibility in all of this in advancing God's kingdom? While at the same time keeping in mind that when God's kingdom is advanced, Satan's kingdom of darkness will resist. Now let's continue with the Lord's Prayer. In verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, may I caution us here? God's kingdom must first be established and growing in our own hearts before we even try to take it elsewhere, advance it elsewhere. So what, what does this fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread, what does that have to do with advancing God's kingdom? Well, may I suggest, may I suggest Jesus here is, is not just referring to our, our daily physical needs, although that's important and worthy of prayer. Not just our physical needs. But hear what Jesus, who is the bread of life, has already said about our daily spiritual diet. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus speaking. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And who is the mouth of God? Jesus, the word of God made flesh. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, God's word must be our daily staple if God's kingdom is to be first advanced in us. And then, having feasted on and been fortified by God's, can I say, wonder bread, his word, we're better fortified to complete the good works God has prepared for us toward that righteousness, peace, and joy. And once again, what a privilege all of this is. A God who not only wants to provide for us, but can and perfectly. Well, next, uh, Jesus' fifth petition in prayer is for our good and for the good of others. Forgive us, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now I'm convinced because Jesus uses the word forgive here in verse 12, that financial debt is probably not what he has in mind. The Apostle Paul understood this to be a sin debt that carried with it a penalty Here's Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages or the price or the penalty of sin is death. Death. But thankfully, it was the death of Christ on the cross that paid, that covered our sin debt. 
Jesus became the final payment, the final sacrifice for sin. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews will eventually write for us? Hebrews chapter 10, picking up at verse 11. Day after day, every priest stood and performed his religious duties. Again and again, he performed the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And why? Because it is finished. It is finished. But having heard this, I'm wondering if these Jewish disciples, having heard Jesus from, from verse 12, I wonder if they're now asking, Jesus, wait a second, you mean to tell us all we have to do is pray for forgiveness? We don't have to offer up some kind of sacrifice for our sins, for our various sins? Well, that's because the sacrifice was going to come in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that's a forever forgiveness of our sin debt that the Apostle Paul writes about and Jesus will carry to the cross. Ah, but then, but then we should be quick to confess. Yeah, that's, that's great news, but, but I keep on sinning almost every hour. I keep on sinning. Well, first of all, know this, that just because a true believer sins doesn't mean they cease being a child of God. I got, I got sisters here this morning. <laughs> How many times did I sin against my own father, my own dad, yet I never ceased to being his child? They can vouch for my sinning. And thankfully, if we confess our sins before God the Father, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We never cease being a child of God just because we sin. But apparently, this part of the Lord's Prayer is so important. Jesus provides an addendum to this particular petition on forgiveness. Look at verses 14 and 15. They're not part of the prayer, but they're part of Jesus' instruction. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus speaking. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will will not forgive your sins. Whoa, <laughs> that sounds rather conditional, doesn't it? God only forgives us when we forgive others. Yeah, but see that little word as back in verse 12? As? As takes this from a conditional expectation to a comparable expectation. And there's a difference. There's still an exp exp uh, expectation, but there's a difference. It's a comparable one, meaning, since God has forgiven me, who am I not to forgive others? If I've been unconditionally forgiven by God, who am I not to unconditionally forgive others? Yeah, but I know some of you, as well as myself, thinking, wait a second, there are those who have so greatly sinned against me there's no way, it's impossible for me to ever forgive them. And you know what? It, it's right. It's true. It is impossible for you to forgive them, if not for the grace of God that's been afforded you. Can I tell you how many times I've had to pray and ask God, follow this, God the creator who creates 
things out of nothing. How many times I've had to ask God, the creator, to create in me a forgiving heart when it's not there. And thankfully, he can, and thankfully, he wants to. God can melt our hearts. And often, simply by reminding us how often we've had to be forgiven of our sins, especially the ones that have been offense to God, which all of them are. See, the good news here also includes the love of God the Father to forgive others is always available. Hear that again. The love of God the Father to forgive others is always available to us. We just need to pray and ask God for it. So I'm convinced verses 14 and 50 simply reinforce that the greatest privilege, the greatest privilege is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness from heaven and forgiveness for here on earth. And maybe an illustration of this mutual forgiveness can be best um, illustrated by one of the most humbling experiences in my life. You see, years ago, a man in the church asked to meet with me because he wanted to confess a sin he was holding against me and asked for my forgiveness. So I said, sure, let's, let's meet. So I'm thinking, I'll be a nice guy. I'll let him down easy. <laughs> so we meet, and he begins to confess that for too long he's held animosity and bitterness toward me. So I ask, you know, why? And he said, well, it was for something you said about me and my wife. Now I'm getting nervous because I can't remember what I might have said. So I gingerly ask, and kindly and gently, he prefaces his response with, now, Neil, I know you only said it in jest, but still, what you said offended me and my wife. Then he reminded me of what I said. And now I'm begging for his forgiveness. Thankfully, everything ended with us uh, in a handshake and a hug, and uh, we went on to be great friends. But all because this mutual forgiveness generated by the grace of God afforded a win-win for both of us. So let's be clear here. Prayer is a great privilege, but forgiveness of sin is our greatest privilege. And not only because forgiveness becomes our, our free pass to heaven, but also because it becomes a little bit of heaven here on earth when you and I continue to sin. And what a privilege all of this is. Well, now for the sixth petition uh, from the Lord's Prayer, which may sound a bit strange. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Hmm. Would God ever lead us into temptation? What's going on here? What's, what's Jesus really saying? Well, maybe this sixth petition would better translate, God, you lead us so we're not in temptation. God, you lead us so we're not in temptation. You know, King David offered up a similar prayer in Psalm 141. I'm not going to read you all of Psalm 141, but just a few lines from Psalm 141 in David's prayer asking the Lord to, to guard him. Verse 3, Psalm 141, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. 
Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart be drawn into what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds. David's praying here, Lord, guard me, protect me. Don't allow me to be led into sin even by myself. David often prayed that God would constrain him or even restrain him. Remember Psalm 23? Lord, you're my shepherd. Make me to lie down in green pastures. Lord, lead me beside quiet waters. Not a bad prayer request, huh? And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. Let me pause here and, and, and ask a question. How often do we pray in advance, God, keep me from sin? Pray, God, help me to play defense against sin. But Jesus is not only teaching his disciples here to pray for help in resisting sin, but should they find themselves in sin, that God would deliver them from evil, that God would deliver them from sin. So you have the seventh and final petition in this Lord's Prayer. But deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one, or even evil ones, deliver us from evil. By the way, did you know that God provides escape routes from sin. Even if we willingly walk right into that sin, hear the Apostle Paul when he writes to the church at Corinth, his first letter, chapter 10, verse 13. But when you are tempted, God will also provide a way out so that you can endure the temptation. But <laughs> we still need to get up and get out, don't we? As did Joseph when he ran from Potiphar's overheated wife. Also, the author of Hebrews promises if we resist the devil, he will flee. But maybe most encouraging, at least to me, is what the Apostle John promises every true believer. Greater is he, the Spirit of God, greater is he that is in you than anyone or anything else out there. Now that, my friends, that becomes a built-in deliverance ministry, doesn't it? So consider again all that God has made available to every Christian, every true believer. Right in the middle of all these Sermon on the Mount expectations is the centerpiece of great privileges, prayer and forgiveness. Immediate access. Immediate access to the heart of God for the help of God. And in God's new humanity, there's now going to be only one mediator between God and man, and that will be the man Christ Jesus. So three years from now, Three years from this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will reinforce this truth, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Christ. Christ will become our mediator. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And now looking back on the Lord's Prayer, maybe, maybe the reason Jesus includes forgiveness and prayer in the same sentences is because the psalmist has already warned. If you regard sin in your heart, Psalm 66, verse 18, if you regard or maintain or, or keep sin in your heart, I will not hear you from heaven. Thankfully, though, David will also write, a broken and contrite heart, the Lord will never turn away. A broken and contrite and confessing heart, God will never turn away. Well, have you heard this morning in this Lord's Prayer, all the privileges 
God has afforded the follower of Christ not only immediate access to the heart of God, but also forgiveness from the heart of God. So what I'd like to do in closing this morning is take a few minutes for us to practice what I've just preached. (laughs) So I'm going to invite us all to now bow our heads and bow our hearts. And um, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to pray a phrase from it. And then in silence, you just pray in response. In silence, pray in response to that phrase from the Lord's Prayer. And I'll take us through it, and we will be finished. Let's bow our heads. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, revered, glorified be your name. And your kingdom come, not mine. Your kingdom come, not anyone else's. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, your word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. God, lead us so we're not in temptation. But deliver us from all evil. And we pray that in the name of the one mediator between you, Lord God, and us, Jesus Christ. Amen.